All right, we are back. You know, I've been really meaning to go over to the Sacramento News and Review and talk to Cosmo Garvin about his article uh, in the News and Review about how uh, the economic crisis in the country may be the best thing that's happened to the environmental movement and, and, and may be a very good thing for California. And I mention that as much as a reminder to myself that we still need to do that, and, and we will. But um, the Sacramento News and Review continues to publish an Iraq war timeline, which frankly, somebody needs to do. The war in Iraq continues to rage. We were spending $2 billion a week on it uh, during the waning days of the Bush administration. I don't see any reason to think that that has abated in any way. I think that it's good to remind the public that, oh yeah, there's still a war going on over there that needs to be brought to a close. I want to segue that with a little article from The Economist, March 7th of this year. Um, Noting that down in Louisiana, the land subsistence in the Mississippi Delta is going uh, at great guns. Before, during, and after the Katrina disaster, it was pointed out that something needs to be done to replenish the soil that's been diverted through Army Corps of Engineers um, of the uh, waterways. It was acknowledged that without this coastal restoration, uh, Louisiana and New Orleans in particular was going to be in big trouble. The problem of all of this was it was going to cost $100 billion to save the Crescent City. Now, that is a lot of money, but put that in the perspective of the kind of sums we've been throwing around right now in terms of, uh, of, of, of relief to Wall Street and the costs of perpetuating the war in Iraq. It appears that for the cost of the Iraq war, which is estimated now, you know, well over a trillion dollars, we could have apparently restored the lower Mississippi 10 times over. Before we leave this segment, I just want to note uh, the viewpoint in the Sacramento Bee by Don Zia and Jeffrey Knightler about how the peripheral canal would help the ailing Delta to recover. Well, he did mention at the end, uh, by the way, Don Zia is president and chief executive officer of the Northern California Water Association. And Jeffrey Knightler, oh yeah, he's general manager of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. The mightiest of the mighty straws that's stuck into the Delta, sucking water. So, uh, you know, I, all I can say is anyone who believes that a peripheral canal is could actually, could in any way possibly help the ailing Delta to recover, well, they should probably stop smoking crack. I can assure you, and we'll talk about this again in the future, but just trust me on this. I can assure you that this peripheral canal has nothing to do with restoring the Delta ecosystem but may have something to do with the recent seismic studies showing that a major fault along a major earthquake along bay area faults even something as low as 6.7 in magnitude might flood islands in the delta and disrupt the ability to pump fresh water south and we're still planning a field trip to take a look at the um, the levees north of sacramento where they're ripping out uh, old oak trees because the army corps of engineers thinks that's a smart idea Anyway, local water expert Dan Bacher is a guy we've been trying to get on this show for a while, and, and he's agreed to do it in principle. We just have to make it happen. Dan's talked about some of this chicanery and, uh, and the loss of our uh, fisheries, particularly salmon, in California, and we, uh, we, we will return to that topic. Anyway, when I started all this, I didn't actually have in front of me this editorial, which I've now, uh, now uh, snagged. This comes from the March 22nd uh, edition of the Sacramento Bee. Sacramento's a shameless guzzler. The thrust here is that apparently Sacramento, on a per capita basis, 
uses 280 gallons of water a day, which is more than twice the figure of residents in Los Angeles. Of course, the question we are still seeking is, how many gallons do you have to put in the California aqueduct to get a gallon in Los Angeles? If you have the answer to that, by all means, send us an email, because this appears to be something that is a national secret. I have heard estimates as high as two to one. In other words, you got to put two gallons of water in to get one to L.A. If that's true, that means that L.A., this shining example of water conservation, is using as much water as Sacramento, the, uh, the bad guy in this story. And while describing all these measures we need to do to retain water in Northern California, keep it in the reservoirs, presumably so they can ship it south for the benefit of more Southern California real estate developers. No one seems to be talking about how we need to cover the aqueduct so the water there doesn't evaporate. This article is about how 44% of the water in the Sacramento area just evaporates. Terrible. Well, how much evaporates from the California Water Project? I'd be willing to bet that figure of 44% uh, might be conservative. So the advice for the, uh, the editorial board at the Sacramento Beat, get up, have an extra strong jolt of caffeine in the morning, think this through one more time, and then if you want to put another editorial about how we need to conserve water so it can be sent elsewhere, well, then I'd say, shut up, have another cup of coffee, think it through again. Anyway, that's just one man's opinion. And by the way, the opinions that you hear on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, any of our sponsors, the University of California, or the regents of the university. But then, I'm pretty sure you knew that. Anyway, speaking of opinions, uh, we, have been, uh, we have been like a broken record, for those of you who know what that metaphor means, <laughs> in constantly talking about the fact that electronic voting in this country is not safe, and that elections, no doubt, have been swung illegally through chicanery in the matter of electronic voting machines. Well, here's an item uh, hot off the presses. It appears uh, that we were right and justified all along. Not to say we had any doubts about that, but let me just read you an article here from truthout.org. Critics of electronic voting systems have had their warnings vindicated by two recent announcements. An official with Premier Election Systems, formerly known as Diebold, admitted that its audit log system was flawed enough that it would be possible to delete votes undetected, and several election officials in Kentucky were arrested on charges related to election fraud, including changing electronically recorded votes. I guess this came from Wired magazine originally. Uh, Wired reported that officials from Premier admitted in a hearing held March 17th in California, and where were the headlines on this, that their tabulation software could miss significant events, including the deletion of votes on election day. They said the flaw is present in every version of the software. The California Secretary of State's office discovered that audit logs from Diebold machines in Humboldt County did not record known ballot deletions, according to Wired. Justin Bales, general sales manager for Premier's Western Region, told the state investigator that the software does not record deletions and never has. The Secretary of State's office was originally investigating the deletion of 197 votes in Humboldt County when its investigators discovered that the audit logs provided no information on the event. Noting the software does not record timestamps on the events it does document, and it includes a clear button that allows the easy deletion of the audit logs. 
Such audit logs have been at the heart of the electronic voting machine controversy. Critics of the machines have long charged it would be possible to change the recorded votes undetected. And they have urged that at a minimum, the machines should generate a paper receipt that the voter could confirm was an accurate record of his or her vote. Election officials would keep the paper records and use them to verify the accuracy of the electronically tabulated results in the event of a challenge. Meanwhile, in Clay County, Kentucky, the FBI arrested several county elections officials on a variety of election fraud charges, including changing votes already recorded on the electronic voting machines, according to the Lexington, Kentucky, NBC affiliate. They pleaded not guilty. Here's the part I like. According to the indictment against the eight defendants, some of the fraud also included instructing others on how to change votes on the machines and identifying voters who had sold their votes. So here's the question. Why wasn't that front page news on every newspaper across the country? Why wasn't that on the splash page of every uh, internet news site? Why? Anyway, hopefully uh, Brad Friedman uh, and others will continue to, uh, to, to, to beat the drum for this until action is taken by state officials to make sure these voting machines are not used in the future. It's been shown that they are not safe. They evidently cannot be made safe. And obviously, we therefore should not rely upon them on Election Day. And speaking of Election Day, up in Minnesota, they, can't, they still can't decide whether it's Norm Coleman or Al Franken. Franken, at last, uh, last we heard, had a 225-vote edge, but they're allowing every potential legal challenge from Norm Coleman, which hopefully will be resolved before their six-year Senate term is up. Anyway, I think that's a good place to end. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. On next week's program, we hope to bring you Jim Lehrer from PBS. Perhaps you recall it as the McNeil Lehrer Report, but Robin McNeil retired several years ago. Uh, A good news program. Possibly, you know, some might think the best among nightly news programs. Mr. Lehrer is speaking next Thursday in Sacramento, and we look very forward to bringing him to you. And we're happy to report that someone we've always had on our short list of desired guests uh, has taken a a big step toward uh, coming on this program. That would be the legendary General Chuck Yeager, the man who broke the sound barrier 60 years ago. A man who was the central character in Tom Wolfe's uh, classic uh, book, The Right Stuff. If Chuck Yeager doesn't turn out to be one of the most entertaining and interesting guests we've ever had on this program, I'll eat my hat. Anyway, we'll see you next week at the same time.